Uh, greetings to those of us who are gathered here. So great to see your faces. Those of us who are uh, tuning in online, welcome. Uh, it's a, always a privilege to be here with you in this capacity. You know, I think this may be the first time I've been standing here and my pastor's been sitting there. And so it's like, it's like having Charles Spurgeon sitting right over there. So I'm... <laughs> Little, little nervous, uh, but we'll preach the word. We've been going through um, Paul's first letter. He wrote 13, and chronologically, the first one is his letter to the Galatians, the churches of Galatia. And we've seen a number of things uh, through these first four chapters, but all of it really can be summarized, I believe, in one word. In Greek, euangelion, we call it the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. And Paul has been very diligent to proclaim, to clarify, to defend the one true gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And for this reason, the sermon series is entitled The Essential Gospel. Uh, now, what we have seen so far is that Paul starts with this sense of uh, doctrine, this truth that we are to believe. And in his typical fashion, he concludes with a series of instructions. How should the truth that we believe, how should the gospel, the good news that saves us, change the way we live? And so we're in this section, starting today in chapter 5, where Paul will begin a series of encouragements, what scholars call paranesis or exhortations, where he tells us how the gospel should impact our lives day to day. And with all that in mind... I'd like for us all to read the passage now. If you wouldn't mind standing with me, it'll be on the screen. Uh, we're in Galatians chapter 5, 1 through 12. If you need a pew Bible, it'll be on page 915 there. We'll read Galatians 5, verses 1 through 12. The perfect word of our perfect God. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and we are your people, and how grateful we are to be in your presence. We need you. We need to hear a word from you. I pray that you would speak, that you would give us encouragement through your word, 
hope through your word. Give us a vision of Christ. And may I decrease that your word would increase, that the glory of Jesus would be made much of in this moment, that all of us would be changed into the image of Christ. That's what we pray for today in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you. Freedom is not free. Those words are engraved into one wall at the Korean War Veterans Memorial in our nation's capital. Indeed, it could be written over every memorial wall. It could be etched on every gravestone of every fallen service member. It's true. Those of us who have family members who have served, or perhaps many of us here have served ourselves, you know exactly the price for freedom. And to put it in perspective, from the American Revolutionary War to this very day, there have been over 2.8 million U.S. casualties to war. Believe me when I tell you, freedom is not free. And there is no greater cost associated with human freedom than the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. His death was the ultimate payment to secure human freedom for all time. Amen? Now, I want you to imagine with me for just a moment that you're coming to Hillcrest. You love this church, and you particularly enjoy the Christ-centered worship and the fellowship that you get in connect groups. And you especially love the preacher. The pastor here preaches the word of God week in and week out. And then one Sunday you come to Hillcrest and you're sitting there and there's a guest speaker. And he's giving the word. And as he's preaching, he looks at the congregation and he says these words. He says, unless you are baptized according to the Baptist tradition, you cannot be saved. There'd probably be some murmur going on in the congregation. A little unrest. You may start shuffling in your seat. And then imagine he goes on to say, it is necessary, it is absolutely required that you be baptized and that you be obedient to everything Jesus ever said before you can be saved. Of course, I'm paraphrasing Acts 15. Y'all would be writing a letter to the pastor. I know some of y'all, you'll just get up and walk out. Because... That teaching is absolutely wrong, isn't it? It flies in the face of the good news about Jesus. That kind of teaching is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that kind of teaching is exactly what the Galatians were hearing week after week. And it made Paul absolutely furious. Anytime a preacher says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves, you know he's mad. But why? Why is Paul so angry? He he wrote 13 letters. And you know, as you read through Paul's letters, there's this very warm, tender, pastoral tone to them, isn't it? With the exception of this one. He starts off by saying, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you, turning to another gospel, 
He starts chapter 3 by saying, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And then here, strong language from the Apostle Paul. Why? Because Paul knows that freedom is not free. He knows the tremendous price that was paid for their freedom. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ spilled to set these Galatians free. And he sees them walking willfully back into bondage. And he writes this section, this one that we just read, to begin a charter for Christian freedom. He writes to give a constitution, if you will, of what it means for the Christian to be free. What is the central idea of this text? Paul, in this text, is urging the Galatians to reject the enslaving message of legalism and to embrace the gospel of freedom in Jesus Christ. And if I can summarize this section in one sentence, I can't do any better than Paul himself does in verse 1. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But what does Paul mean when he says freedom? To be free in this sense, and as he's been talking about in this entire letter, is to be free from the law. A simple definition is this. Freedom is being released from the burden of being accepted by God on the basis of human performance. Christ has set us free from the demands of the law as a means of being right with God. To be counted righteous, which is what he's been talking about this whole letter, to be justified, if you will, by faith alone, means you're free from the obligation to earn righteousness by your own works. And this text is all about Christian freedom, which we have in Christ alone, by grace alone, Through faith alone. And this passage can be divided very neatly into three sections. And so what I'll do is give us a little preview of where we're heading today. Like a a swim instructor. It's almost summertime. Get in the pool. Kind of take a tour around what is in the pool. And then we'll take a swim in the pool. So we'll look at three questions. We'll answer those questions from the text. And then we'll give some exhortations. Here's a preview. Question one will be, how is Christian freedom purchased? We'll look at the answers from verses two through four. And then we'll ask, how is Christian freedom possessed? How does it come into our possession? Paul will answer that question in verses five and six. And then third and finally, we'll ask the question, how is Christian freedom preserved? Verses seven through 12. Let's begin with question one. How Is Christian freedom purchased? Here's the answer. Freedom is purchased only by the work of Jesus Christ, not our own works. If you're taking notes, I made a mistake and left out the word only. That's a very important qualifier. Freedom is purchased only by the work of Jesus Christ, not our own works. Look at verse 2 with me. Paul says, look. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He's been saying this this whole letter. 
but I think it bears repeating. There is no, I repeat, no way to harmonize salvation by works and salvation by Christ. You can't mix them together. In fact, to even try to do it is sinful. Paul's saying that if you accept circumcision as a ground of your salvation, that is tantamount to rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, Hillcrest, to accept any work, no matter how biblical it is, circumcision was a very biblical thing. God in the Old Testament told them to do this. But any work, no matter how biblical it is, if you accept it, as the way that you were saved, you are rejecting Jesus Christ as your Savior. You're not saved by your baptism. You're not saved by your church attendance. You're not saved by your Bible reading. You're not saved by serving in a ministry. You're not saved by giving money to the church. All of those things in their place are very proper and appropriate and good but they have zero power to free you from bondage. Amen? In fact, if you look to them as your source of freedom, they will become for you your very source of bondage. And Paul knew that. This is why he has this urgent message to help them see that it is not on you, it's on Christ. And if you insist on relying on your own goodness, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Simply put, it's either you alone or it's Christ alone. There's no alternative. So I urge you to forsake yourself, forsake your good works as your source of freedom. Flee from bondage, never look back. But what does this bondage look like? Bondage typically comes in one of two forms. We'll introduce the first one. It'll be elaborated on next week. And then we'll spend more time on the second one. This first one is license. Or what is sometimes called antinomianism. Compound word, anti, against, namas, the law. This, this is a bondage to sin that says Christians are exempt from obedience to the law because of their reliance upon divine grace alone for salvation. The antinomian says something like this, I've been saved by grace. That means I get to live in sin as much as I want. This is bondage. And to illustrate this, we could turn to Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. You recall this, probably Jesus' most famous parable. A man had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, give me the inheritance that is coming to me. And he went to a distant country and wasted it on reckless living. Parties. Sinful pleasures of the flesh. This is describing this license that I'm talking about. He, he left his father's house to go live it up in sin. And my point to you is this. There is a bondage that has the appearance of freedom. If you think the grace of God gives you the right to live like a demon, you're enslaved. The Bible says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The antinomian says, of course, why not? 
But Paul says, God forbid, may it never be. And Jesus very clearly says in John chapter 8, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. And so if you're in that sort of bondage today, I say to you, forsake yourself, forsake your sin, and be free in Christ. But there is another form of bondage that we must acknowledge here. In fact, this form is the predominant issue in the Galatian churches. It's legalism. This is a bondage of self-righteousness. This error will say that salvation depends not upon Christ, but upon total obedience to the letter of the law. Whereas the antinomian will say, I'm free, I'm I'm saved by grace, therefore I get to live in sin as much as I want. The legalist says, I am free because I obey the law. The legalist believes that obedience to God is what purchases one's freedom. You recall this parable that I mentioned, right? The parable of the prodigal son. The man had two sons. The younger, I described a moment ago, well, he had an older son. He was gripped with legalism. He thought that his obedience to the law, his own good works, merited something for him. Look at chapter 15, verse 29 of Luke. This is what he says to his father when his his brother returns. He says to his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. You see the self-righteous tone there? He says, yet, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. He thought, think of, this is the logic of legalism. He thought he could earn love from his father by perfect obedience. What he didn't see is that the father loved him already. The father said, son, all that I have is yours. It's good, it's proper for us to celebrate the return of your brother. And so the legalist thinks they are the reason God accepts them. They think they are self-righteous. And so that leads to complete bondage. And this is what Paul is describing in this text. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. The Old Testament has about 618 commandments. Paul's point here is that you got to keep them all. If you're going to go the pathway of salvation by works, which is contrary to the gospel, which is contrary to why Jesus came, if you want to go that route, you got to keep them all. You are severed from Christ, he says. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. This is a dangerous error. Martin Luther, that great reformer, he said, if you accept Moses in one point, you must accept him in all. It does not help to say that circumcision is necessary, but not the rest of Moses' laws for the same reason that makes you accept circumcision also makes you have to keep the whole law. And my point here is just simply this. If you and I have to keep the whole law to be right with God, we're doomed. There's no hope for us. 
We will be enslaved to a life of failure and disappointment all our days. And it's not the law's fault, is it? The law is good and right. What's, what's the problem? It's us. We're sinners. So Christ sets us free. Only the work of Jesus Christ, his substitutionary death in the place of sinners, his burial, his resurrection, his work on our behalf, only Jesus saves. How is Christian freedom purchased? Freedom is purchased only by the work of Jesus Christ, not by our own works. Therefore, here's the exhortation, therefore, forsake yourself. Forsake any works as a means for you to be saved. This naturally leads to the next question, which is how is Christian freedom possessed? How does it become our possession? Here's the answer. Freedom becomes our possession only by faith, not by observance to religious ceremonies. The point here is that faith is the free gift. Faith is the means by which we receive the free gift of God. Faith and faith alone is the instrument through which we receive righteousness from God. Faith is the hand that extends itself and holds the gift that God gives to us. It doesn't earn it. It doesn't work to purchase it. It just receives it. Faith is the mouth that receives delicious food that we eat today. Today, I'm going to go to my mother's house, God willing. And I'm going to eat some really good food. And my mouth will not have made any of it. It merely receives it. And I want you to think of this imagery. Jesus purchases it, but we have to receive it. We have to take it into ourselves if we would benefit from it. This is why Paul makes much of faith in this letter, but particularly in verse 6. Look with me. At verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but what? Say it with me. Only faith working through love. Our faith has implications for our lives today, day to day, in the here and now, but it also has implications for eternity. According to this passage, verse 6, Paul is saying that <clears throat> what our faith really is is a reliance upon God, which results in works of love. Faith is not just the instrument which receives, it's a matter of reliance upon God. In the same way I'm relying on this pulpit, in the same way that you're relying on those pews right now. These Galatians, to which Paul is writing, they're being led by false teachers to rely on their own works. They're being taught that faith wasn't enough, that they needed to keep the law also. And so they began to keep religious feasts and special days. And they began to consider being circumcised. And there's nothing wrong with special feasts or special days. They're in the Bible. Here's the distinction. If you're being circumcised because you want to be right with God, that's a problem. If you're doing any religious observance because you think your law-keeping makes you right with God, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. We rely on Jesus. And that's what faith is. It's a reliance upon Jesus. It's a falling upon him. 
Faith is so much more than just believing facts to be true. You know this. Imagine you have an infection and you go to your doctor tomorrow morning perhaps and your doctor being very competent physician writes a prescription, maybe some penicillin, antibiotic, just gives it to you, sends it to the pharmacy and you swing by the pharmacy on your way home, you pick it up. You can believe that your doctor is competent in giving you a good prescription. You can even have faith, believe that the pharmacy is good in filling it for you. But if you never open your gullet and ingest the medicine, it will not benefit you, right? Faith, the, the faith that saves is taking in Christ. And James, the apostle James talked about this. There's a sense in which you can believe something in your head but not in your heart. There's a sense in which you can believe something to be true but not truly receive it to yourself personally. James says in James 2.19, he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. What's his point? Saving faith certainly includes believing facts. Amen. We have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We have to believe that he died on the cross and he rose again from the dead. But it's so much more than just believing facts, isn't it? Even demons believe right things about Jesus. You read through the Gospels, what do they say? They see Jesus, they make a, they make a profession of, of truth regarding who he is. You are the Holy One sent from God. We know who you are. And yet, they're not saved because they're not trusting in Jesus. That's the distinction I'm making. And that may be true, perhaps, of someone who's listening right now. Maybe you know a lot about Jesus. Maybe you believe things to be true about him. But to this point in your life, maybe you've never trusted him personally to be your personal Lord and Savior. The Bible says in Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved, right? So I call upon you now, fall upon Jesus with all your heart. Rely on him fully to save you. Trust him completely. And he absolutely will. In the very moment that you trust Jesus to save you, you are counted righteous. And that faith, this is Paul's point in this text, that faith that is in you will work itself out in works of love. This is why he says faith working through love in verse 6. So our faith has implications for today. We, we, we believe and we live it out through acts of love, but our faith also has implications for the future as well. Look at verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. That's a bit of an odd statement, don't you think? Why would I say it's odd? I've been stating over and over again, as has Paul, 
in the first four chapters of this letter, that the moment, the moment you receive Christ, the moment you trust him, you're justified, right? We believe that. The thief on the cross, I don't know if I've ever preached a message without mentioning the thief on the cross. On the side of Jesus, he turns to Jesus in a moment of faith, in a moment of reliance upon him. He says, Jesus, when you enter into your kingdom, what did he say? Remember me. He didn't have to wait to be justified. Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. So what is Paul saying here? Why would Paul speak of an eager hope for what is already ours by faith? Paul's statement here has to do with the final judgment. On that day, those and only those who've trusted Christ will be finally vindicated. Paul wants all of us to see that faith alone is sufficient, not just at the beginning, but for the whole eternity. This is important. He says this to the Galatians earlier. Are you going to begin by faith and then continue on by works? Will you be perfected by works if you started by faith? No. It's faith alone all the way through. If I may be personal and transparent with you all, that's always a dangerous thing in a preaching moment. (laughs) Verse 5 is especially meaningful to me personally. I confess to you all that as a, as a Christian personally, I've often struggled with assurance. How do I really know that I've really, really been born again? How do I really know that when I get to the final judgment, I'll hear, well done, my good and faithful servant? Maybe you've never struggled with that, but I'm being honest with you. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm well aware that Jesus paid it all. I have zero doubt that his work for me is sufficient. I know for sure that I am trusting in him and that my salvation can never be lost. It's his work and not my own. Please don't misunderstand me. I know these things and I'm trusting Christ. But the honest truth is that I'm discouraged by how little I look like Jesus. Maybe you've experienced that. In 20 years of walking with the Lord, I feel like I ought to be a little further along than where I am now. I have this sinful tendency. It's sin. It's doubt. I have this sinful tendency to doubt the free, unconditional grace of God for sinners like me. And so the final judgment is sometimes something that I think of with great fear. Why do I share this personal struggle with you? Because I'm convinced I'm not alone. There's probably some people out there like that, and I want to be of help to you. I want to encourage you with what has encouraged me. I want to encourage you to say with me, along with the fellow in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Let me encourage you with these words from Charles Spurgeon. This is what he says. It's not great faith, but true faith that saves. And the salvation lies not in the faith, but in the Christ in whom faith trusts. Look away from your own trusting and look to Christ alone. Therefore, 
we can approach the final judgment with complete confidence and assurance based on the promise of God. You know, the scripture really helps me be encouraged, but there's also a little something else I do. Can I just share it with y'all? Can I, we're just going to be transparent. Is that okay? Can I share it with y'all? The hymns have ministered to me in my hour of weakness. And one in particular that's been very helpful to me goes a little something like this. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. It It is well with my soul. If you've ever struggled with assurance, God's promise is always true. He's faithful. And the scripture cannot lie. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Both now and throughout all eternity. And so how is Christian freedom possessed? How does it become our possession? By faith only, not by keeping religious ceremonies. And so therefore, the exhortation is to fall upon Christ. Fall upon him, rely upon him. And that leads us to our third and final question today, which is how is Christian freedom preserved Freedom is preserved only through struggle, not by passivity. Look back again at verse 1. He says, for freedom Christ has set us free. What's the next words? Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. I want to be very clear. Jesus Christ purchases our freedom. And aren't you glad that Jesus Christ preserves our freedom? He keeps us. But we do have a role to play in defending the message, don't we? That's what Paul's doing here. Just like we must stand firm to defend and preserve American freedom, we must resist all those who would seek to steal our Christian freedom. Look at what Paul says earlier in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He says, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might what? Bring us into slavery. He says, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be what? Say it with me. Preserved for you. There is a holy boldness that characterizes the Christian life because there will always be opposition to the gospel. Paul says in verse 11 that he is still being persecuted. Beloved, I will tell you, as Paul says to us in his last letter, we're reading his first letter, he says in his last letter, 2 Timothy, 
all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So what do we do? Do we run from it? Do we cave in? Do we deny Christ? Never. What we do is we resist by the power of the Holy Spirit. What we do is stand firm in the truth of the scripture. What we do is we fight for the gospel of Jesus Christ. How is Christian freedom preserved? It's preserved only through struggle, not by passivity. So therefore, the exhortation, fight, fight for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or as Jude will say, contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. On August 28, 1963, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, a 34-year-old American <clears throat> stood and delivered one of the most iconic speeches in American history. In this speech, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. shared a vision for a nation where everyone is equally free. He focused on racial bondage, racial segregation, racial discrimination. Because it's a sad thing when someone is legally free but made to feel or treated as though they really aren't. But that's also what was happening to these churches in Galatia. It's wrong when there are people who want to diminish the blood-bought liberties of other people, isn't it? Beloved, freedom is never free. It comes at a great cost. And it must always be fought for. This is true for the American, but this is especially true for the Christian as well. Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In the words of Dr. King himself, he says, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. This is God's word, and let all who agree say amen.